Welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast. It's been a little bit and we're going to start it off with a bang again after a few months with uh, Shaggy Williams out of Vertical Integrity Rescue down in the great state of Texas and Micah Rush, uh, world famous now with Peak Rescue from an outstanding finish at Grimp Day in Namor. How are you gents doing? Doing awesome. Thanks for having us again. Great, Mark. Thanks um today we've got a couple topics we threw it out on the old insta tweet there and we got some feedback about uh stuff to go over so we're going to talk a little bit today about where does two is one one is none end we're going to talk a little bit about rigging some of this phenomenon about cow's tails to the map of a pelvic harness while in a stokes and we're going to talk a little bit about if sac pro board and what it means kind of in the fire service and in the rescue world. And if we come up with any other rabbit holes, we might hit those too. Sound good? Golden. Be perfect. Right on. So let's start off with, uh, I guess, an easier one here and go with, where does two is one and one is none end? And I guess in here we're talking specifically about redundancy. There's a huge pause. Micah. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that's one of the biggest probably problems in our industry is where, where does it end? And I always, we always tell people in classes, you get to take away, you know, one thing or two things. You don't get a lot of what ifs. And what I find in the service or the rescue service is that we start doing the, what if this, what if this, and eventually we just have this Im unimaginary system that we we've put into play. Uh, an easy one to do that with is, is my sort of hang up is this tying into the patient inside a litter. Um, what is that actually going to do if it does fail? Why are we doing it? And, and does it actually make sense? But it seems like for the last 30 years, we've been doing it. So we just keep doing it. When I actually ask a team, what is going to happen or how is this patient going to fall out? And if they do, what is this going to do for them? It's pretty funny to watch their expressions. So just to be clear for the, the listener out there, because it's not really a viewer, we don't have a lot of photos going on with the old podcast, but um, we're talking about a secondary, I'm going to call it point of attachment from the map to the patient. And we're rigging into the patient's harness in a stretcher, correct? Correct. So the question here is, is your primary means of rigging fails somehow and the patient is now holding up the stretcher with their secondary attachment. Is that the conversation? Definitely with their yeah. back. play. <laughs> so I guess everybody can kind of vision this out there. You've now got your pace, the rest of your system hanging off of your patient. So, you know, whatever they're packaged in Stokes basket, you know, spine board, VSB, whatever this looks like, all hanging off of the patient now while they're supporting that system from, you know, the ventral or sternal point on their harness. Yeah, and I think it probably bears at the beginning of the conversation to determine whether or not you should, like, pigtail the belay into, say, the head of the Stokes basket. Like, is there a, is there a, an acceptable thing that we should be promoting or, or do you think at the end of this conversation, we'll end up promoting that the ring is the ring and it's going to be perfect and never, uh, never cease to exist. And that's fine. So, you know, which way are you guys leaning? I guess at the beginning. Well, like just to reiterate now for the folks that are listening. So I know like in BC search and rescue, for instance, we go from the map clove hitch or rail, and then into the patient. So the rail is getting the first point of attachment. So if it fails, it just hangs really, really weird with the uh, patient hanging in it as well. And hopefully you've left enough tail from the clove to the patient so that you don't have some really weird, cool thing happening. Yeah, I think that's the big thing is what are we attaching it to? Is it a rigging plate? Is it the master ring? Or are we, you know, tying knots, some super um, knot, super butterfly, super bowling. And, and that's the failure point that has to happen. And to me, that's, that's kind of a lot to ask of if that thing fails. And I haven't 
found a case where that's actually failed and I could be wrong, but I'd be interested to know. And then all these secondary things happen after that. To me, it's always looking at that attachment. Where are we going and what are we using? Uh, obviously in the backcountry, interlocking long tail bowlins is a big one or the super bowlin where they're using that instead of a plate because they're going lighter. Um, industries obviously using the big God ring, the, you know, the 18,000 pound ring. I just don't see these things failing all the time. So to confuse people going back and forth between confined space and are we going vertical and horizontal? It just seems like a lot. Um, and this can go even into pickoffs. I see, look on the internet. I have teams myself that they have these four feet of slack clipped into the dorsal of a harness as a backup. And when you when you run down the rabbit hole of what ifs, it's it's just kind of gets absurd. Okay, a couple. Yeah. Hang on a sec. So a couple points with that. Do you think perhaps that four feet of slack in the dorsal is from training scars? You understand what I mean by training scars, like previous training where you know perhaps people used to use shock absorbers and say, hey, you got to leave enough room in there for that shock absorber deployment, and that training scar has now weaved its way into the psyche of that team? Of course, yeah, I, I think, think I think it's been bred into them for years and then not knowing. And the, the only way I've found to fix some of these is like the air correct, we call it, or the Swiss miss. Um, we use it when we're short roping guiding with two people, just taking the slack out with a big overhand knot. Um, mm -hmm. But in the end, these train, it's, it's trying to train people backwards in a sense that um, this is what you've been taught for, you know, 20 years. Uh, let's get rid of it. Let's look at the root cause. That's what I love about eiders. And that's what I love about the new, uh, I should say the new movement is let's ask the question why, and let's tear it apart. If it doesn't make sense, let's get rid of it. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I, I think it, um, you guys, we had had an earlier conversation about heuristic traps and it, isn't this kind of what training scars are? It's just applying the, you know, you think you're doing well, but you just kind of a little bit off to the left or right. And then all of a sudden you're, you're creating more problems than, than what you're fixing in the end. So let me ask you this, and I'll start with Shaggy on this one. Do you think there's a difference between tying, like from a redundancy point of view, tying interlocking long tail bowlins as opposed to using a map or, or a rigging plate, unless you're irata, but I won't go there. Uh, no, it, a cold eye glance. I don't think there's much difference. I, I think uh, both have, um, you know, things that you need to pay attention to. And if done correctly, I think uh, interlocking bowlins are fine. I've used them most of my career at one time or another. Uh, obviously, rigging plates don't break. I don't think rings have ever broken either. Uh, I agree that uh, we teach this two is one, one is none. But it basically stops at the anchor and stops at the map. And we need to be able to intelligently answer to that and come up with something that uh, makes sense that we can kind of go forward through and maybe change this industry a little bit before somebody gets hurt. Can you elaborate, go down the rabbit hole on, it stops at the anchor and it stops at the map. Can you to talk about that a little bit? If we're looking at, uh, we'll just take a single rope system just to begin with. People have been on rope forever, rock climbing, and have no issue with it as long as you apply some logic there and do a good job. You put an anchor around something and then you tie into it. And then basically from that single anchor all the way up to the map of the rescuer, you want all this redundancy, but yet at the very beginning, at the very end, there isn't any redundancy. Now we understand that you have that second rope and there it is. But if you're looking at one line of rope, we want all this stuff done between A and Z. And I think it's pretty comical that we get, you know, almost algebraic about the amount of redundancy between the two. But yet if you blow the anchor or if the, the harness falls apart, none of the stuff in the middle mattered anyhow, right? Micah, thoughts on that? <laughs> I think it's really funny. We're getting into the risk benefit analysis. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was funny this morning. I'm doing, I'm literally mobilizing an armored escort to go teach a class with two rope systems. Um, and I just started laughing when I was um, with another guy and I were, were getting this together. And I thought, how funny is this? If 
we're literally getting an armored escort because the country we're going to is not wanting people in there right now. And yet we're showing up and then we're going to teach a two rope system on ropes to do rescues. And I, I think that people are getting out of control with the maybe, maybe overkill. And then we're tearing each other apart. You, you have to be able to evaluate. And if you're your system, and if you think it's good to go with one, go with it. If you think it's good with two, go with it. When we get into this long tails coming off and we have to have it every time. I just, when you tell me we have to every time, that's when my sort of hackles go up. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. A risk-based approach is what we're supposed to do. That's what we teach from day one. Uh, safety check your things, apply the right logic, apply the, apply the correct math to change the directions or whatever. We do all these great things, but then I think we lose our minds on this redundancy. It's interesting, and I'm going to go on a little tangent and go back to my point. I'm not trying to go down the COVID rabbit hole, but there's a picture on the internet right now of a guy on a motorbike wearing a mask, but having no helmet on. And it kind of commented on maybe his risk benefit analysis is a little off. Catching COVID while riding a motorbike is probably the lesser risk of getting into an accident and having your head split open on the pavement. And like you say, we get into this risk benefit analysis conversation. We, uh, um, looks like I'm going over to Antwerp to the uh, fire Academy there in April to do their, their IMP, their, their rescue school. And a lot of people go, well, you've already got a whole bunch of rescue calls. Why would you go over there and do theirs? What do you plan on learning out of this? I have no idea what I plan on learning, which is one of the reasons I'm going, but I also know they have a little bit more of a risk benefit analysis matrix done. They're allowed to access patients on single rope technique. However, they have to do a risk benefit analysis on that particular system before they can employ SRT. And I'm really curious to see what that benefit analysis looks like, the timeliness of it, how it's implemented, those types of things that you just don't get out of reading it in a book that you've really got to go over there and experience firsthand. Because I wonder if we've become a little risk adverse in the North American Fire Service, which is bleeding over into the North American Rescue Service. Do you think we're becoming too risk adverse? I think some teams definitely are. I yeah. think, I think for sure that we, it, and it also depends. I always think that mission profile matters too. If we, I have all these teams right now, they, they want this super, super sexy eight mil um, micro tracks and ATCs and this lightweight titanium, this titanium, that. And I, and I tell them, well, that comes with years and years of experience. You can't just jump into that. And does it make sense? Am I teaching you partner rescue? If you're in the mountains and you're, if Mark Shaggy and I are in the mountains and we do a rescue, we have to get it done with what's on us. That's a totally different approach than if a team shows up a professional SAR team or a professional rescue team shows up, I kind of expect something from you. And um, to get it done, that's that's where this, I think this, we run into a head with these teams saying, well, we have to have it this way or we have to have it this way. Now that we have to play it safe or we're going to get sued or we have to do it this way or we just want to do it because it's the coolest thing on the internet. And that's where I think we're running into this risk-benefit analysis conundrum. When I'm talking to a lot of the leaderships, when I'm with their classes, you know, a lot of the feedback I get at lunch or offline is, is uh, kind of what you said, Micah, dumbing that down um, to a point of even the, you know, the least uh, skillful uh, rescue person will be able to uh, safely work in that environment. So it's one of those things where they're they're just kind of adding all this and just in case the dumb person is left with some responsibility. And that doesn't seem like a really smart way to run a rescue team. I think maybe some people uh, do not need to be on rescue teams in that case, or they need to be uh, trained up to a, a level of responsibility that is commensurate of the total piece. Right. And I think we're, we should probably not be playing to the lowest denominator. But as a training provider, I end up doing that a lot. How, how does that affect you guys uh, out in the field as well? Well, I think also as a provider, if you haven't 
told somebody that they haven't completed the course and they'll get no certification and no hours from you. Um, I've had to do that twice this year. I think your proving says if we just pass everybody and tell them they're all great and then everybody should be a rescuer, I think we're doing it a disservice because then we come up with these systems that are wrong. Of course, I want to try and help them as much as I can, but I've had to tell people, I don't think this is for you and you might want to find something else. You're not, you, you physically can't do the, the job. So maybe it's time, I don't know, maybe find something else in your career. So there's a trend right yeah, now. It, it, look, that's a hundred percent. Go ahead. I was going to say, there's a trend right now. You look at the new NFPA standards, what they've taken some stuff and made it into technician. I look at BC search and rescue ropes, for instance, and they've kind of made this break where this operations level person kind of goes to the edge and it's the technician level person that goes over the edge. Is this creating more of a problem with this lowest common denominator, as we're calling it here, in that we're, you know, is this valid? Like, should we be having this break point where, okay, these people can only rig and can't get to a spot where they can fall off and then it takes the true technician to go over the edge? Or are we taking the technical out of technical rescue in that case? That's a, that's a great question. I think you could argue it both ways. Uh, it's just a case-by-case -case basis, I guess, with level of intelligence and that kind of thing. I wish there was a better answer, but... So, so now you have the least competent person lowering me to my death yeah oh and it's funny you say that because when i teach fire and when we teach privately we would always have the guys and girls do an ascend and descend before we allowed them to lower anybody mm -hmm. because we went if you can't lower yourself i'm not gonna go have you lower your buddy but yeah. yet now the nfpa and these standards are moving in such a way that that lowering yourself is a technician skill. So we're going to train you to lower somebody else first, but you've yeah, never been yeah. on the end of a line. You don't know how fast you're going, how slow you're going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, when I came up to the, through the ranks, the, the lowest guy was always on belay. And I get that because the belay is the, probably the least sexiest position, but Jesus, it's the most it's important thing <laughs> in the whole system is catching the load if something goes wrong. And I thought, wow, this is probably not the best idea to put the lowest guy there either. I mean, we think of in the back of our SAR teams, the, if you were getting lowered and you looked over and you saw somebody running the tandem pressic belay, you could usually tell right away if you were going to hit the ground if something actually did happen. <laughs> yeah. And I would say 90% of the time I'm thinking, I'm just going to hit the I'm, ground. I'm going to hit the ground. Yep, yeah, I agree. Uh, and that's that's really a scary thought. And so, you know, we've we've kind of hit on a couple of things here. We've hit on the fact about risk benefit analysis and are we coming to risk adverse? And now we're chatting about some of the standards to be taught to that are breaking down. And like you say, so now we have our the people with the least amount of experience are the ones building and running the system. I mean, there's always someone to check it over. Yes, there is these things, but our our most competent people are technicians, theoretically, are the folks that are over the edge. Is this backwards? What do you think, Micah? I, I think you go down a deep, I don't, so I have always brought over, and I think that's what Shaggy was alluding to when we were in the Rescue the Rescuer class. Um, I talked about avalanche and how we go heuristic traps, how we as instructors or us as leads on our team, we get caught into this. Um, we can do no wrong. And so maybe the beginners don't know what they're doing. Um, I think they bring the most to the table of somebody like me teaching. Cause I really like to see where they're coming from. Skill wise is a different story. What a beginner doesn't know, or a low technician doesn't know what they don't know. So to me, putting them at the top, letting them lower they're they don't know that they're about to make the mistake where if you have somebody competent, they can sort of manage these things from the top down. It's like anything when we're, if I'm hanging at the bottom, I've been lowered by the least trained person on my team and something goes wrong. I'm in a really bad spot to get out of it. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. So should we be looking more at principle based instruction than prescriptive instruction? Hmm. 100%. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, you have to, don't you? I mean, I would, I would think so for certain, but now we're talking back to a higher level of instructor, which isn't a bad thing. If, if you're in front of a class and you've put yourself there, I think that it's important to be able to answer these questions and tailor it to them. Um, I think there's phenomenon, I don't know what you'd call it, but it's this internet craze where I've watched it on the internet, so I, therefore I can do it. And what I found is people come with a lot of knowledge on paper or what they've said they've done. And when it comes to practicality, it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually transfer over. So people actually get in on a rope and that's my whole other thing. Listening to an instructor who actually cannot perform the skills on a rope is something that doesn't sit well with me either. Um, I think if you, if you talk the talk, you should be able to walk the walk. And I truly believe that matters in your teaching because if you can't do it, you can't teach it. Um, and I don't care what you say. There's just, there's a point when you actually, you won't know the nuances of what you're teaching. So if I'm teaching a beginner and I don't actually understand, uh, the depth of what I'm teaching, it's never going to help him in the end. Yeah, I agree. I think there's many industries where, you know, that old axiom, if you can't, you teach. I think that there are probably a myriad of examples where that's worked, but it does not work in rope rescue. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to, to answer to every little bit and uh, it keep it simple. I think we're getting to the point to where the redundancy is, is confusing. And as we've all stated, if it's mismanaged in terms of rope length or, or going to the map of, of a pelvic harness, you think you're doing well, but you're about to turn your patient inside out. So why are, sorry, why are we still doing it then? Why do we still see these, these teams rigging the patient into the system like that? Because you can go on YouTube and Google it and find a thousand pictures that at least at first glance looks exactly like that's going on. It, it's amazing. I went down a rabbit trail yesterday preparing for this uh, podcast and the number of pictures and the complexity in which people are rigging stoves baskets, just mind blowing. I also, I also think that the, it's breaking, breaking sort of habits. Um, I think one of the best, maybe the best um, presentation I saw at Eiders this year was from Tim Dirk and doctor. He talked about patient positioning in a, um, in the litter and, what I got out of it, and maybe he'll tell me I'm wrong, is that having a patient hang on a harness inside a litter is a really bad thing. They should be supported by these tie-in systems that we're putting, whether you're doing lashing webbing. I think the new CMC tie-in, uh, the PMIs, the fast buckle, the um, ISCs, all of them are so well. If you pick somebody up and put them vertical, they're resting on that. Having them cram into their, you know, slide into their harnesses is basically this presentation. It's a bad deal. Like we all knew it but we shouldn't be letting them. And are these systems that we're putting them in good? So if we're saying that they shouldn't even be sliding into them, then why are we letting them fall and hit it in a worst case scenario? And are they really gonna come out? And that brings you to like, are we putting two harnesses on them? To me, I've built the harness around them. That's the stokes and the lashing system. I don't need a secondary harness. When I do a pickoff, I could go off on days about this. We're doing, we're still connecting to the dorsal. Um, We've, we've proven that the sternal is better for airway uh, compartment syndrome or suspension trauma, but look on the internet and you'll see tons of departments or teams still running it to the dorsal. Uh, and I think, I guess to answer you, Mark, I think it's breaking bad habits. And, and I'm going to say I was there too. I just didn't know until I got into it, started seeing other things. Why are we still clipping? The dorsal is sort of useless to me anymore, except for North American working at heights, I guess. Yeah, and, and when you start to go down that rabbit trail, you, you obviously see other examples of things that we cannot get rid of. I've pulled up an army uh, PDF on patient packaging today. Uh, it came out in June 2020. As I'm searching back through there, they're still touting 1,006 two-man loads at three and 600 pounds. That stuff hasn't been in 1006 since what, 95? It's really hard to break bad habits in this industry. And it's pretty amazing because clearly the information is not the same as it used to be, but there are 
generations of people still spouting these various rules that are no longer relevant. So I can see how changing this one little thing is is going to take a long time too, unfortunately. Well, let's let's kick up it up a little bit here and go. So some of this risk aversion, people are trying to solve the problem by play things like IFSAC or ProBoard, ITRA, by these third-party certifications. Is this the answer to the question? I mean, one of the questions that was emailed into us about, uh, you know, throw a question on the podcast is, what about, you know, things like ProBoard? All the fire services, you know, your 1,001, 1,002, all these, they want IFSAC seals or ProBoard seals. Yet when it comes to rescue, nobody seems to care. Should we care? Should we not care? Are those standards irrelevant to what we're doing? Who wants to hit that one first? I think ProBoard is a dumbing down of the American Fire Service. Um, It's it's taking something and it's making it a good old boy system or making, we all want this shiny certification that says I'll be able to do anything. The certification mean it means nothing. And we all know that it's how you, if you've actually put the time in to do it. And I can relate to tech rescue, the last pro board certification with a, um, an aerial, uh, truck, it was hundred foot five. I showed up. I didn't even have to set up the truck or about pumping evolution. I didn't even have to pump the truck. And that was the pro board certification. And to me, it's a spot check and it's this weird thing, but now we're requiring it through the state to state. And now if this department has this, you know, I'm pro board, all's blessed and you must know everything. Um, I really have a hard time with that. So to me, I, I honestly think it's a dumbing down of the American fire service. Yeah. And I think when you put it in conjunction with uh, that lack of proper sign off, like you talked about uh, with the fact that they don't have expiration dates, you're really setting yourself up for failure because you're giving the certificate, as you had stated, that says that uh, I know what I'm doing. And the reality on the ground is, is this is a perishable thing and you should have to prove that uh, in um, you know certain time frames and whatnot. So on both ends, we have a problem, right? It's a couple of interesting points. I'd like to dive into them a little bit further. I'll start with the last one first. And it's interesting to bring up expiration dates. The last technician level, IFSAC, Pro Board, whatever you want to call it, certificate that I received in the fire service was in 2010. And the fire service will still deem me as credibly qualified to this day. What are we, almost 12 years later? Because there is no recertification on any of these. Should there be? And if so, should it be a full course? Should it be a refresher? Should it be an advanced? What are we looking at for duration? What are your thoughts? I think you'd have to you have to take into consideration how much the the materials changed uh, between that and your expiration date would be your first thing, right? And then logic states that you should have to recertify on super important stuff. It makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah, I I think that it's. It's interesting. I think teams, all teams should be doing their JPRs and recording themselves every year. Um, I also believe that you should be going to bring it in or going to an outside party. So you're not drinking your own bathwater, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's not cost effective to, um, let's say that me, you know, bring in one of us in to train your team every year. Um, but I also think that you should be able to have recordables for that. And meaning that Every year you do some sort of training and record your JPRs internally. And I don't see a lot of teams doing that where this year we did our own training and we met all these objectives and every year we do this. And, you know, every three years, two or three years, we bring in an outside or we send somebody to the outside um, class to make sure that we're still on par. I do this internally with, with myself also with uh, within our company, we try to go to outside trainings. It's getting harder and harder to get people to, um, you know, there are companies to open up to let us come in, but um, I fully am all about that. I think that we should, even as trainers, be seeing other people's products and training styles to get better. Um, Team-wise, I, I think they should do it every year. Yeah, and you don't have a lot of help 
because there is not that research, when you have these teams, even my own team uh, for the industrial side, I still have pushback from leadership on the quality of training, what I cover uh, in the frequency in which I deliver it because there's no piece out there that says, you know, beyond the, the OSHA regulation for con space, we don't have anything that says we have to. And when you have bean counters making decisions and no, no meat to be able to get these decisions made, you know, this thing is kind of a, a disease at all levels, right? Well, having a, having a pro board certification, let's just pick that one apart for a minute. If you have this, let's say a team comes to me for five days. I have them for five days out of a full year and expect mm -hmm. them to come back and be proficient. And that's the last time they touched their rope or equipment, whatever it is, is absurd. And to think that 10 years later, I haven't touched it. Or I haven't stayed up on it, that I'm still proficient. I mean, it doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah. Zero. So do you think perhaps in the fire service, and I'm just, I'm going to reach in here. So I go, I got my FSAC seals. I become a firefighter and we run around the hall and I'm catching hydrants all the time, you know, with training, with fires, I'm pulling hose. It's a regular part of my job. And then you get into these, you know, lower frequency, higher risk events, your hazmats, your rescue, these types of things. Is that why the fire service hasn't been so big on having the pro board because they know, Hey, it's, there's no recertification date. And we know with firefighting skills, they're going to be out there doing them every day, but unless they go to a rescue hall, for instance, they're not even touching this stuff again. So it was a great checkbox to, you know, change out some candidates so we could make a decision from 3000 down to 300 on our hiring. But at the end of the day, we don't really care because we're just going to retrain them and rescue our way when they go to a rescue hall, if they ever do that in their career. Or am I too far off base on this? I think you just said it in a different way, right? I, I think that that's exactly what the problem is. So how do we fix it? And I also think it comes down to a money thing. We have, I mean, we go to departments. It doesn't matter if it's industry departments or if it's fire departments. It's the first thing to get cut for money. If we don't see a call that's in front of us, a fire or whatever, that's it's the first thing we're like, what did we spend on rescue, trench rescue or structural collapse stuff? It's expensive and it's expensive to keep up. They'll tell you a confined space program is a million dollar program to keep up. And if they don't see this happening in front of them every day, or they're getting one or two calls a year, it's the first thing that they want to cut in their, in their, in their program. So if they don't have to put anything into it and they can check their box and just have a certification. So when it does go down, they said, we did everything we could. I think that's the easiest way to go. And just like a rope log or something, some trackable piece, if we had that thing in place where you had to put X number of hours, like a access program would be, at least that would give us as leaders, you know, something to go back to the head shed with and say, hey, look, uh, technician X only has X number of hours. And in order for this to be, you know, remain uh, an active certificate or something uh, he she is going to have to spend some more time on rope before x date and and we don't have that so there's no urgency on their part to make these decisions so is what we're talking about today all all from the same problem I and mean, we're talking about is the redundancy and how redundant to make stuff and are we really looking at these systems and risk aversion and let's call it check in the box training opposed to some sort of certification of competency on a regular basis. Is this all coming down to a very similar problem of the fire service, the rescue services, they want this skill set because it's not used as much. There's a limited amount of budget they want to put forward to it. So they're trying to get the most bang for their buck and have it look as good as possible on paper so they can say, hey, you know, my KPI, my key performance indicator on my management contract got completed here and I can get my bonus or my raise or keep my job, but we're not, we don't really have a deployable thing at the end of the day, or am I just reaching too far? 
what's the thing that we always say when when somebody's trying to take us down that rabbit trail of continuing to add more and they talk about things breaking what do we always say where's the pile of bodies arnold pena show me yeah. the pile of bodies yeah yeah so that doesn't that same analogy work against us from all the way to the top to down to the least common denominator if if leadership isn't seeing a bunch of rescues and then when they do they don't see a pile of bodies obviously what they're doing works in their mind so that's psychologically setting the stage for uh, like micah says this kind of dumbing down because we don't have any indicating factors other than at right at ground level when somebody can't tie his shoes we don't have anything between there and leadership to to again back us up in some of these decisions we make to spend this money so the fire services i'm just picking on the fire service here but i mean rescue is pretty much the same way the the we can get it done attitude is hurting us then because we're creating a positive feedback loop for the people that are in leadership positions around here. And as long as it's broke, don't fix it. I think that's a pretty good explanation. Michael, what do you think? Yeah. And I always try to think, and I I know I'm on here, you know, trying to bash the world and I, and I'm not trying to do that way. I think there should also be, we should also have solutions and what that solution is. I'm still trying to find, I think I had a lot of high hopes with, um, with ITRA um, getting in there because I, I liked the idea of everybody has to be assessed from a third party to keep your skills. And you had to do a ref- you had to do it every three years mm-hmm. to me, that gave me hope to be, you have this team now and they can't hide behind the strongest guy or gal. Yeah. They actually had to be assessed individually to make this team um, from an outside party. And I think that scares a lot of people and it shouldn't. We should be able to um, get these certifications and defend them and also do them ourselves. The skill should be individual and, uh, and then come together and do some team exercises. Um, but that's what I liked about that. And I, and I believed in it. Obviously, I was from the start and I, I still have hope that it'll come back. But that's um, trying to find solutions for this, I think, is going to be the hardest thing. Um, we can sit and complain all day, but actually trying to make solutions for a lot of these problems is where we all need to come together and figure it out is yeah, I, go ahead. Shaggy. I was just going to expound on what he said. And I agree a hundred percent. I think it comes down to the lowest common denominators or, or us three as, as trainers, right? We just have to change people one step at a time. Unfortunately, that adds years to getting to the, the end result. Uh, there are things that, again, we still have problems uh, getting people to understand the changes and the way things are written and so on and so forth. It's just amazing the amount of bad information out there. And uh, we have a lot of work to do. Now, I mean, I'm a big proponent of people going to things like Grimp Day. Um, and I'll, I'll try to, you know, generalize it a bit more with scenario. Should pro board and IFSAC or regulatory bodies that oversight this, ITRA, whatever you want to call it, should they have scenarios in there for, call it um, currency training or recertification or type of training where you are put up against a clock and you do have an objective because that seems to be able to cut a lot of wheat from shaft at that point. You, you know, yes, you can have the lower members of the team somewhat hiding but at the end of the day if you can't get the task done you can't get the task done is that something that needs to happen more oh man i I can hear the crowd screaming now um but uh, i mean i would love it i think it would be amazing it's a um i think it would have the biggest pushback but the scenario based um yeah research would be amazing i think all of us at the end of our classes, we do scenarios for our guys and gals. And that's what they love most is putting all these pieces together that we've given them to come up with whatever you call it, the yellow brick road or this master scenario that they get to use all these skills and put together. So of course I would love it. Um, I don't know if the service is ready for it in general. 
Yeah, I think people are just afraid. It's kind of like having test anxiety or whatever. People don't like to be uncomfortable, but I, I just don't care. I think that you need to show me. <laughs> I think you need to show me that under stress, that your skill set is still high enough not to kill you or other people. And the only way that you can do that is with a well thought out scenario. The one thing, the measurement that I have learned since day one that has never changed is the golden hour. If you can't do a simple rescue where you can stand by the patient in a, in a given number of minutes and then get them into higher level of care in under that golden hour, I don't have any use for you. I'm not saying that there are not really complicated rescues that blow the hour, but for the most part, we all know rescue isn't that sexy and it's not that hard. You just have to apply some logic to it and keep moving forward and save somebody's life. And if they can't prove they can do it, they shouldn't be doing it. In reality, this scenario-based training, isn't it kind of what happens anyways, a lot of times outside of rescue when we talk about things like no recertification things for a pro board or an IFSAC or whatever. When we go to a fire, we generally have a debrief after the fire and things that maybe didn't go so great get, you know, the training offices are usually there and they, they create some training in order to fix those things. And what we've really done is taken a skill set, pushed it into a scenario. It's a live scenario come up with shortcomings and then train to those shortcomings. But once again, in a lot of cases, I mean, a lot of people are doing rescues every day and they become very good at them because of those scenarios. They're doing live scenarios and getting that feedback loop and changing what they need to in order to make it relevant. So the people that aren't doing it so much, wouldn't that just be the next natural thing is making them do scenarios? Sure. In our classes, if the skill set permits there's some some variables there that we have to take into consideration but most classes are to a point by day four or five that they can take some fairly simple scenarios and make those work over and over again uh, you guys both know i had a class that was three and a half days old the other day had a real world call out uh, right next to us they went over there applied the same things they've been applying for three and a half days and i uh, 12 minutes later, the patient was on the ground and they lived and everybody was happy. And the feedback I got from our people or our, our students rather was, hey, this is just like you said it was. And this is exactly how you said it was going to go. We just set these things up and followed these rules and everything worked. Wow. It's not uh, rocket science, just rescue. Yeah. And I, I think, Mark, you, you nailed it on the head with we can also once we do these scenarios, we can pick our weaknesses as a mm -hmm. leader or as an instructor, a team leader, or as an instructor, I found doing scenarios, you can find we're weak at climbing rope. We're weak at communication. We are weak at X, Y, and Z. Now we can address those issues and come back and see if we can put the scenario back together. And you're relating to the fire service. I think we're no different. We go and train at the burns, the burn, um, the burn house, and we come out and think, what could we have done better? And then we deal with those issues. Uh, I see no difference in doing scenarios with rescue. Um, it will bring out all your weaknesses, as Grimp Day will, um, and, and kind of point out what you need to work on as a team or, or as a team leader, for that matter. Sure. Yeah, I I Go ahead, Shaggy. I, I reckon had the same effect on us. I, I have said that, and I will till the day I die. I am not the rescue tech I am today without the reps at IRECA. We use live patients uh, and they are, you know, middle of the road difficult and you've got some pretty short times to get things fixed. And those reps is what's created me and my ability to, you know, keep my uh, motor skills up and my, my, my view wide, you know, I don't have that narrowing under, under stress that I did when I was younger. And it's because of those, you know, thousands of reps in these uh, pretty interesting scenarios that cause us to think outside the box. The flip side of that is, is that you'll see lazy people, you know, doing these scenarios on the same towers 
you know, with using the same anchors and so on and so forth. So we need to be diligent about also, you know, making sure that we're requiring them to think more, not, not letting them use the same thing over and over again, take, take pieces out, you know, uh, cause failures like a uh, rescue the rescuer, that kind of thing. So we're saying here for solutions is basically put your teams through scenarios and not so much scenario-based training, but scenarios, and then base your training on the outcomes of those scenarios, on the pros and cons that come out of there, your negative and your positive feedback loops. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and then making sure they have a basis, of course, when they're a team. But yeah, I think the scenarios will bring out um, what we're good and what we're bad at. Absolutely. Right on. Did we cover this subject well enough? Is there something else we want to throw up here? Don't attach a pigtail to the pelvic harness of your patient in a Stokes. Just don't. That's what they should take away from this. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do the math for this paper next year, Micah, but we're going to have to figure out how to uh, tear the pelvis off a dummy and be able to measure the shock across the body against the webbing or the lashing. It's going to be interesting. We can make that happen. Yeah. Is that, uh, is that an Eiders project for next year? Uh, yeah, I was voluntold by uh, this guy, Micah Rush. I don't know if you know him or not, but apparently he has some strokes. So and now I'm giving a paper or, or Funk and I are giving a paper on behalf of uh, vertical integrity next year, it looks like. Just as another quick tangent, Eiders uh, this year, what were some of the good takeaways from that you guys took out of there? The packaging one with the doctor was phenomenal. The Rick, uh, I can't ever pronounce his last name, vertically speaking, he had a pretty good one about uh, redundancy. I think he called it redunculus or something. That was a pretty good one too. There were several good papers. And then, of course, uh, the Arbor Reeve. You did a good job with that, Micah. Yeah, I think my big takeaway was the um, the patient packaging and position mm -hmm. in a litter. Uh, yeah. I think that was super eye-opening for a lot of people there on actual um, studies that are going out there now. Where we're, where, What are we doing with a patient? We're putting them in there. Is a harness worse for them or not? And uh, looking at that, I thought that was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else besides the harness on the patient? Was there like slightly head up, people on their side, on their back? Did it get in more into that? Like we're uh, just a little rundown on that. Yeah, it did. He talked about head up and then actually putting him in a seat, either, um, you know, getting rid of backboards, which we should all be getting into those, um, but using a, um, a vacuum splint and actually make, making a seat. So they're resting on the seat and not sliding into anything else. Uh, there was mm -hmm. talk of a BOSI chair. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting, but yeah, the um, putting him in that. So when they do go vertical, to horizontal that they're not actually sliding into the bottom they're actually it's like they're sitting on a chair inside the stokes so yeah, instead they, of doing sorry shaggy so instead of doing foot loops do some sort of arse loop exactly. yeah yeah it, it basically was talking about you know injuries and we teach we teach these stirrups that we stand in well it's great for a patient in a, a class but an actually hurt patient what's that doing to them and is that injuring them so if we can give them some sort of seat uh, imagine putting somebody in a chair and then lashing them into a Stokes. Uh, is that more comfortable for them and um, better for them in their outcome medical wise in the end? Yeah, Mike and I were looking at the chairs we were sitting in when the, when the presentation was going on and we whispered to each other like you could literally just lash a chair into the basket. Uh, it, it would work. Uh, it would be suboptimal, but uh, it, would, it would be possibly better than the alternative. And then the doctor even had some pretty wild packaging techniques like with patients on their stomachs and whatnot. It was pretty, pretty interesting. That brings up some really interesting ideas. Yeah. I mean, I guess we kind of forget rescue is medical care. <laughs> yeah. At its basic, at its root. And then at the rope part is basically just getting them, you know, problem solving to get them over some expanse, but it's still a medical care problem. Yeah, and that's why it's so difficult to watch some of these new teams that kind of get paralyzed by that analysis and 
they do a good rescue and things are safe and and perhaps they meet something close to the golden hour and they think that they're successful but it took them you know 35 minutes of that hour to actually be standing next to the patient well that obviously doesn't work if, if he's having you know a cardiac arrest or some various things that you could maybe turn around if you got there quick and i think there's not enough uh, emphasis put on you know getting to somebody without a high directional or something like you don't have to wait to put up an extra system just get over the edge and get down to them and, and start mitigating that disaster while you're hooking up something else and i think that goes kind of plays back into the scenario thing that we were talking about you just don't see that. I, I just can't tell you the last time I saw somebody just kind of flop over the edge and make patient contact. They just they just feel like you need to wait for this whole thing to be done. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a way, but that's not the best way. Yeah, Mark, I think you go off on a bunch on that. Like, I think one of the most, one of the scenarios I liked at Grimp Day was the medical scenario where you showed up and somebody was bleeding profusely through the leg. Mm-hmm. You had to put tourniquets on and it turned into a whole medical, which also decides how you're going to package that patient, which yeah. then decides which way you're going to orientate that patient, which then decides how many people you're putting in that patient. So I think we do miss a lot of that. Um, and I did love that part of that um, in Belgium when they, when they did that scenario, because it really made you think about what are we doing for a patient when we just teach a team, the standard thing, again, scenario-based, here's your scenario, you know, make it work with how you package him or her and how you orient it. And I thought that was, um, such a good way to go. I think we've missed it. Maybe I've been missing it also in teaching. Well, there you go. There's another takeaway from all of this. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, gents. Um, I've eaten up about 45 minutes of your time. I know you've got other things to do today. Uh, do you have any parting words or are you happy with what we've got? I'm happy. Uh, thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. I'm psyched the podcast is back. I'll be listening to all of them. <laughs> Yeah, I'm stoked just to get the opportunity to to hear some of the great subjects you guys are uh, talking about on the podcast. And I think just the more we talk about it and uh, the more that we try to make those changes on our on our, you know, at that student level, I think slowly but surely things will grow and things like Eider's Papers and, and perhaps some of these other organizations that are going to maybe grow into something where we can have a you know, some type of um, expiration date, I think that's going to help quite a bit too. People are just going to, I just can't imagine you not being more skillful if you have to re-up every so often. Right on. Well, thank you very much for coming on, gents. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mark.